0: AJ, given the whole time travel thing, I gotta wonder, do we ever find out how Cable actually dies? We do, actually, or at least one of him. Locked in a Holmes versus Moriarty style deathmatch with Strife, I
1: assume? No. He gets shot in the head by, uh, what's his name, yeah, some Spider-Man looking dude. Deadpool? But I thought they were bros, and possibly a couple. No, no, it's it's okay, um, Cable actually helps Deadpool. Um, do it. Cable helps Deadpool kill... Cable? Present Cable helps Deadpool kill far future Cable. Does Cable go evil in the future? Not that I know of. Then why would Cable help with that? Well, see, Deadpool needs Cable's heart for Strife, and um, I'm... So Strife is involved? Not directly. Anyway... Modern Cable feels vaguely responsible for the whole mess, because Strife is his villain after all, so he takes Deadpool to kill an ancient, decrepit version of Cable who's hanging out at the end of the universe just waiting to die. Seems reasonable. On a Viking barge in outer space. What? I'm Jay Editon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 212 of Jay and Miles explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to part 3 of 3,
0: which is to say part 9, 10, 11, and 12 of 12 of Executioner's Song.
1: Technically, it's kind of part 3 of 3, and it's kind of part 3 of 4, because we are going to revisit all of this... One more time after we wrap up the main story, but it's part three of three, at least of covering the main event. You know, I I was going to say I I, I was feeling kind of excited that this was about to be over, but I think I've gotten kind of attached to it. I know. I mean, having a bunch of
0: different plot lines going on all at once and only kind of connecting and being mainly a context for lots of awesome punching and all of the villains you could possibly cram into a story hanging out. I'm
1: going to miss that. And it's kind of nonsense, but it's also pretty epic, especially in the last bit of the story, where things really, really ramp up, up, and we get a lot of the kind of callbacks that I like, the kinds that are sort of oblique, but very much there, and more callbacks to emotional beats than to specific narrative moments.
0: That said, Executioner's song does have a somewhat controversial ending, and we'll get to that, and your mileage may vary. Mine certainly has, even from time to time that I've read
1: this story. And you know when you say ending it's it's funny because the ending of executioner's song is something that is going to inform the next decade or so of x-men comics and the mutant chunks of the marvel universe you know speaking of of ending and sort of whether it ends because we, we we joke occasionally that it's still always inferno an Executioner's song and the ending beat of executioner's song is going to have ramifications that inform basically the next decade of the X-Universe and in general of the, the mutant section of the Marvel Universe. Yeah, this story really does leave a hell of a legacy. I see what you did there. And I'm judging
0: you for it. Okay, so we have like so much story to get through in these four chapters. So I vote we dive in and attempt a... Previously on Executioner's Song.
1: Professor Xavier was shot at a Central Park Unity concert... By what appeared to be Cable. Except it wasn't really, it turned out the gunman was Strife disguised as Cable, which wasn't hard for him since they look exactly identical aside from their individually questionable fashion choices. Now Professor Xavier doesn't care right now who shot him
0: because he's busy dying of a techno-organic virus, you know, kind of like warlocks or apocalypses,
1: that came from the bullet. Everyone else cares, though, and fortunately for them, Mr. Sinister, in a rare turn as a sort of maybe kinda good guy, showed up to let them know that Strife was in fact the baddie behind the gun.
0: But before the X-Men and X-Factor knew that, they went after X-Force, Cable's protégés, hoping to find Cable. And also because X-Force are wanted criminals, X-Force are now captured.
1: Except for Cannonball and Boom Boom, who've been able to negotiate their freedom by helping the X-Men and X-Factor track down Cable and Strife. The rest of X-Force, however, remains in the danger room in individual cells.
0: Now speaking from a second ago of Mr. Sinister, he disguised himself as Apocalypse to capture Cyclops and Jean Grey, who he then traded to Strife in exchange for a mysterious capsule. Then he basically pieced out of the entire story.
1: Strife has been engaging his captives in confusing and poorly explained games of revenge via torture, most notably calling them mom and dad repeatedly and force-feeding them baby food and asking if that was how you raised a child. We get the feeling that Strife has some intense issues with the way he was raised and his possible parentage. Unfortunately, he refuses to explain himself, so none of the people upon whom he is seeking poetic revenge have any idea what the hell he's talking about.
0: Now, it's become gradually clear to we, the readers, that Strife is probably an adult version of Cyclops' infant son, Nathan Christopher, who Cyclops and Gene had to send into the future to be treated for a techno-organic virus given to Nathan Christopher by Apocalypse. Now, that's not clear to any of the characters, just us.
1: And sometime in the indefinite future, not in this crossover, we'll learn that Strife is in fact the clone and Cable's the original, but for now, pretend none of us know those things, just like readers at the time wouldn't have. Meanwhile, the real Cable has teamed up with Wolverine
0: and Bishop to have giant muscles and giant weapons and take the fight to Strife. They're currently hanging out in Grey Malkin, Cable's awesome space station.
1: Back on Earth, Apocalypse, still weak from his untimely resurrection, has shown up at the X-Mansion and offered to help cure Professor Xavier.
0: Meanwhile, meanwhile, Peter David has been regularly reminding us that this whole expatriate refugee plotline was going on in X-Factor before all this crossover nonsense started, and we should really remember that. But unfortunately, nobody but Peter David cares. All right, so that basically catches you up. If you're confused, I mean, A, that's probably fine, this is confusing, and B, hey, we have episodes about all that stuff we just talked about, but, like, way longer.
1: Right, and we'll link to those in the visual companion to this episode. We should also point out, um, if you haven't actually looked at this on the website, we'd recommend it, because David Wynn, who does an original illustration for every episode, has been doing this set as a, as a triptych, and they are really, really cool together.
0: Very much. Like, 90s Tacular in the best possible way. Speaking of the 90s, this is a 90s crossover, and you gotta have gimmicks, and as we've mentioned, every
1: issue of Executioner's Song came with a trading card. And all of those cards are from Strife's perspective, and therefore each labeled Hunters or Prey. Who've we got this time, Miles?
0: Chapter 9 gives us Jean Grey and Cyclops, labeled as Prey, and I kind of love this card, because Cyclops looks kind of normal, but Jean Grey, who I assume is supposed to be telekinetically flying, she's really close to the ground, so it just looks like she's in the process of totally wiping out, having just tripped.
1: Like, I don't know, it's really wonderful. So this again, and, and for reasons that will come up later in this episode, um, I've been thinking a lot about birds and superheroes who act like birds. And this takes me back, first of all, to the, the running joke on Waiting for the Trade about the phoenix just acting like a bird and doing things like trying to pick fights with mirrors. And also to the idea, which, which then takes me to the idea of superheroes flying into windows, which I find really funny, like probably funnier than it really justifies. Warren Kenneth Worthington III, you watch where you're going. Aww. Yeah, see, it's always funny. (laughs) And that brings us to the card from Chapter 10. Right, that's the Dark Riders, and they are hunters. Chapter 11 has Archangel, a hunter. And finally, the sparkly, pointy star of the show
0: himself. Strife, who is, unsurprisingly, according to Strife... A hunter.
1: Also, he's definitely the smoldering, badass hero who's probably got a fancy sword, and dark flashing eyes, and he's bound on revenge to all the people who wronged him. And nobody understands
0: him but you, diary.
1: It's true, it's true. Which brings us to Uncanny X-Men number 296, Crescendo.
0: Like the other Uncanny Issues, this is written by Scott Lobdell, with pencils by Brandon Peterson, and inks by Terry Austin. And... We've been doing this the entire crossover, and often do it in our show in general, but we're definitely going to be moving around certain plot points just so we don't go back and forth and back and forth and essentially recap the comic and be very boring. So we'll start out, even though the issue doesn't, at the Xavier School.
1: There, Beast has finally extracted Strife's bullet from Xavier, and working in parallel with him on the other side of the Atlantic, Moira McTaggart has been able to extract the computer code responsible for his disease. And I
0: love this part so fucking much because you'd think it would be like, you know, A's and C's and T's and G's or something like that. No, no, no. no. The virus is in fact like a computer virus and it's a big screen with a picture of Strife's face on it laughing and the text scrolling infinitely over that face. You are smart, but I am smarter. This is fucking straight out of Hackers. This is like the cookie monster flummoxing Penn gillette in the
1: climactic hacking scene near the end. I love everything about how 90s this is. Oh man, I was gonna ask what Strife's hacker handle would be, but no, it would obviously just be Strife with a Y. It
0: totally would just be Strife with a Y. Maybe that's how he got started. Maybe he was a renegade hacker played by Johnny Lee Miller in Earth 4935 or whichever one it was. Has anyone ever written,
1: like, specifically a hacker's AU of 90s X-Men? Because I would just, I would read the shit out of that. Didn't this come up on the show a while in the past where we realized that if Kitty
0: Pride and Doug Ramsey were in the Hackers universe, they would just use their normal superhero names because Cypher and Shadowcat
1: already sound like hackers names? Right, and I was thinking about that, and it, it kind of goes for everyone. And so, yeah, yeah, um, this, this is obviously just waiting to happen.
0: I love everything about this plan. Apocalypse loves loves everything about the plan where he finishes regenerating, having made his big declaration about saving Xavier at the X-Mansion in the end of the last chapter. Apparently, he then just sort of like fell over. But I love the art here. We sort of see his non-armored parts emaciated, rebuilding themselves like these gross bubbly, blue spiderwebs, it's really visceral. Like, there's a lot of cool, gross stuff in 90s X-Men comics, and I know that sounds weird, but getting the grotesque to look both engaging and horrifying simultaneously, having it draw your eye and at the same time repulse you,
1: that's a skill, and a lot of these artists of this era do it well. I really like the idea that Apocalypse, whose actual power is that he's got stretchy limbs— goes kind of formless and weird when he's inju- when he's injured, that, that his structural integrity takes a degree of attention.
0: Absolutely. It's it's really cool. Like it should be silly, and I guess it is, but there's also that wah to it.
1: So now that he's he's pretty much recombobulated himself, um, Apocalypse says, yeah, he's up for this. He can save Charles Xavier, the X-Men are understandably somewhat leery of that promise.
0: Interestingly enough,
1: Archangel, who hates Apocalypse
0: like so much, you guys, believes Apocalypse can do it, and explains why.
1: For better or worse, though I am loath to admit it, I am living testimony to his genius, twisted or otherwise. He may be Charles's only hope. But let's take a brief detour to space.
0: Before we find out if that's the case, let's head to Cable's orbiting space station, Graymalkin.
1: Yeah, um... So I really love the dynamic between these three characters, specifically that when you take Cable, who is arguably the most intense dude in most given rooms, and you put him with Wolverine and Bishop, he comes across as downright laid back. He
0: does. Like, he's actually telling Logan and Bishop to just, like, take a break. I think, honestly, I think that Cable, Blood, and Metal chilled him out a fair bit. Bishop, though, he won't be deterred. He is busy helpfully recapping the crossover so far for the readers and, I assume, strategy reasons.
1: I mean, that makes sense to me as a thing that Bishop does, because not only is he constantly in strategy mode, but for him, you know, he's revisiting these bits of history. He's trying to process events that, for him... Are the past and resituate them in his own present. So, Bishop, as kind of continual recap guy, makes sense to me. Wolverine, meanwhile, having been deterred from smoking on the space station because he is full of bad ideas, decides instead that he's just going to go grumpy teenager, take a cue from Strife, and carve something into a table using his claws.
0: I'm pretty sure he's just carving the name Slayer into it. Are you sure it's not the Stussy S? Which
1: is not actually the
0: Stussy S. That, that's, that's an urban legend. Nobody really knows where it came from, or at least I don't. I'm sure someone does.
1: I mean, I originally learned it. I, I didn't even know that it was nominally associated with a brand until a few years ago because, again, grew up in a box. But I, I originally learned it not in con- context of S's, but that it was a way to draw, like, things twisted together.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Listeners, if you grew up in the late 80s or early 90s, you know what we're talking
1: about. Otherwise, uh, that's why Google exists. No, no, we'll stick one in the visual companion. Excellent. I'm pretty sure sure I can draw this with, like, the trackpad on my computer in in graphic converter or something. (laughs) It's not that hard, after all. It's just, you know, two sets of three parallel lines and some diagonals. Speaking of parallel lines and diagonals,
0: like the ones in Strife's armor— Let's check in with Strife's base, where, at the end of the last scene, we saw Cyclops apparently having inadvertently killed Jean Grey with his optic blasts.
1: Okay, I love this, because not only are they faking, but they're faking in ways that are basically a canon-knowledge fake-out. Because they're doing a classic Scott and Jean moment, but it's not for real. Exactly, so as all the Dark
0: Riders close in to, I don't know, like, make fun of them or something, they blast the crap out of them, and run the hell away, and they end up in this big open shaft, straight out of the first Death Star in A New Hope, and... Also, like in A New Hope, Jean tethers onto something high up with like a telekinetic lasso, which I don't even care if that makes sense. It's cool. And Cyclops grabs onto her and they swing across and they kiss as they do. And it's like sort of gender reversed from what you'd expect. And it's genuinely romantic and genuinely heroic. And it references Star Wars. And everything about this makes my goddamn heart sing.
1: Yeah. So one of the cool things about this part of the arc is that this is Scott and Jean on the moon fighting against impossible odds um, to save, you know, their lives and the future with basically nothing but each other to rely on. And, um, except it's actually Gene this time.
0: It's fucking great. Now, you may notice that we're talking about the moon and that hasn't really been revealed in the story. I like having that knowledge for these scenes.
1: Like, yeah, it's a spoiler, but for me it really adds to it. And honestly, I don't think it's a twist that makes a really big difference to the progression of the story. Agreed. Now, they're going around being heroic and romantic and
0: trying to figure out why this old helmet man hates them so much, and they find, ooh, something we haven't seen in a while. A big-headed adult-faced, we assume it's a baby, wired into a wall. Now, it's supposed to just look like a normal baby, but nobody can freaking draw babies in the Marvel Universe or the Renaissance, so, you know, it just looks kind of weird.
1: Well, that, and it's reminiscent very specifically of another poorly drawn baby whom we last saw on the moon, and that is, that is little Nathan Christopher when he was being swamped over by the techno-organic virus right before he got sent to the future, and that's clearly what this one is meant to evoke. Gene and Scott, of course, recognize it as well, and Gene points out, It's as if Strife knew we played out a similar scenario not that long ago.
0: Yes, Gene. Yes, it is very specifically like that. Seriously, you're smarter than this.
1: But here's the thing. We know that Strife has a hate on for Apocalypse. We know Strife has done a ton of research on all of this. We know that Strife is literally occupying... Well, Scott and Gene don't know this, but we know that Strife is occupying the same base where this stuff went down, so there's a reasonable chance he just found the security footage or something. I mean, we know otherwise, but the point is this isn't actually that telling a detail.
0: I suppose that's true. That is a valid point. But Strife holograms in and says, all right, if they kill the baby, there's like a weird dead man switch thing, and that'll also kill him and the Dark Riders and blow up the base, all for the price of one American dollar. I mean, one Nathan Christopher baby. Or they can basically just fight everybody, which they are totally not equipped to do. But of course, that is what they do because they're heroes. And I kind of love the narration here.
1: Long before they'd ever met, Strife believed he knew all he needed to about Scott Summers and Jean Grey. He was wrong. God, speaking of throws of vexmen men 137. Right. And so Scott and Jean retreat.
0: They just jump into the big elevator shaft thingam so that the baby doesn't get hurt in the crossfire. And we find out via narration that the baby was, in fact, just a construct, and the only reason that gene thought it had a mind and a soul and stuff was because Strife put a little bit of his mind in there, and then the baby just sort of, like, techno-decomposes back into the machinery, and it's really sad and grotesque, and goddamn, Strife's plans are unnecessarily complex, but I kind of respect that.
1: Scott and Jean don't get to enjoy or be horrified by that moment, though, because they bust through the outer wall of the Citadel and are promptly sucked out Into a vacuum, because they are on the moon, which has no atmosphere. This is a problem.
0: It totally is, and I love the page that ends this issue, because there's them, you know, in zero G, in the vacuum of moon space. One quarter G. Okay, one quarter G, valid. And there's just sort of Strife's angry face looming over them, cackling maniacally, like the moon from the Mighty Boosh, speaking of moons. And as this happens, back on Graymalkin, Logan realizes that he has not in fact just been carving Slayer into his desk. He's been drawing, absentmindedly, the moon. He's figured it out. Scott and Jean are on the goddamn moon. But
1: did he draw it with a bite taken out of it and the letters C-H-A?
0: One can only hope. That takes us to Chapter 10, X-Factor number 86. One of these days, pow, zoom. Which, by the way, is a honeymooners reference. It's sort of like a about spousal abuse, so I think it probably is less funny than maybe people thought it was back then. But uh, at least it references the moon, so that's clever.
1: Yay! This is written by Peter David, penciled by Jay Lee, and inked by Al Milgram. There are a lot of teeth in this issue, but they're well done teeth. And this is this is so so. I talked about Jay, Jay Lee's art last time as as basically making it look like Dracula should pop up any second. And there's a really notable stylistic shift between X Factor 85 and 86 because he goes from the craggy horror style to what I can only describe as just this incredibly Patrick Nagel look. And it's not bad, but it's a weird change up. He also gets very, very into using negative space, which is really interesting. And again, very, very, very Nagel.
0: It's pretty great. I love Jay Lee's art. Like, I, I not everybody seems to. A lot of people can't stand it. They just consider him, like, a, a worse Sienkiewicz, but I really dig his work.
1: Oh, he is so different from Sienkiewicz, and he's also channeling a really different era. I mean, to Sienkiewicz's classic rock, I, I mentioned, you know, Patrick Na- Nagel, who is, is the New Wave album cover illustrator. And I, I feel like Lee here is is going going full New Wave. Um, and again, I love the stuff that he's doing with negative space and with, with Zipitone and with texture in this issue. It's really, really cool. So
0: I didn't put this in my notes, um, but since you mentioned New Wave, yeah, that first two-page spread where we see all the characters on a stark white background totally reminded me of the cover to Rio, Duran Duran's album. Yes, that's Patrick Nagel. Perfect. I Now I know who drew that.
1: Yeah, uh, Patrick pa- Patrick Nagel is an illustrator who unfortunately died um, in the mid-'80s, but who who did a lot of those seminal album covers nice you you mentioned all the characters together so there are a bunch of x-men basically everyone but wolverine and bishop at home on earth trying to figure out what the hell to do and they're there when wolverine calls home to let the x-men know that he has just had a burst of intuition and scott and gene are clearly on the moon so he thinks he may be caught a telepathic burst from gene it's never quite confirmed but it kind of makes sense since he is the guy who you know of of the x-men he's the one who she knows best who's Within range, presumably, because I guess Grey Malkin is probably closer to the moon, assuming it's on the correct side of Earth.
0: Also, as Claremont never ceased to remind us, she's totally into him.
1: Right, so, uh, feelings. Um, now, the X-Men debate over who's going to mount a rescue to the moon, and Cable, Bishop, and Wolverine seem like the obvious choice because they're the closest, but Cable is not up for it. He's worried about being captured, but also body sliding to the moon is apparently a huge pain and it requires significant recalibration. Wolverine is not convinced. How long will that take? To which Cable
0: responds, If I do it myself, about 20, 25 minutes. And if we help, an hour and a half. God, I love that dialogue. I just love that Cable gets to be all snarky with Wolverine and Bishop.
1: But I totally get it, because sometimes with complex stuff, it's easier to just do it yourself than to walk someone else through how to do it if you need to get it done fast. It's not like this is a long-running internship. This is, you know, a one-off adventure. Cable can handle it. I'm just imagining Cable with an intern. That job would suck so much. I mean, that's basically Cannonball. Oh, yeah. Well, that probably is why Cannonball's job sucks so much. It really does. Now, while, while they're snarking in space back on Earth... Storm and Alex are basically the de facto team leaders right now, or they're the leaders of the two teams who are are active at the moment, and they are considering strategy.
0: As they're deciding whether to follow up on this moon lead, Havoc
1: begins. You realize this is pretty far-fetched, don't you? Of course. The odds on this panning out are slim. Of course. We're going to do it anyway, aren't we? Of course. Yeah, I figured. Any thoughts on the strike team? Of
0: Of course. course. So the strike team is going to be Havoc and Storm, and then Psylocke, Archangel Iceman, Polaris, and
1: Cannonball. But first, Professor X is still dying, because he doesn't care who's on the moon. He's got a techno-organic virus, dammit.
0: And that means it is time for Apocalypse to do his thing. Well, one of his things. He's got a lot of things.
1: An archangel tries his best to be very serious and menacing, but Apocalypse is Apocalypse who is 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 usually like kind of tries to be above it all, but here he just goes goes in for for sinister levels of smug and man, I am so here for it.
0: Threats. Consider me duly intimidated.
1: We also get a bit of amazing amazing throwaway dialogue. From Havoc and Archangel, in which Havoc says,
0: I say we watch him like a hawk. And Archangel replies,
1: Alex, I do everything like a hawk. Here are some things based on this logic that Warren Kenneth Worthington III definitely does Archangel mostly eats rodents, Archangel regurgitates pellets, owl style. Warren basically shrieks all the time. We already know he decapitates his prey, which is apparently very
0: much in character. But we didn't know that Warren Kenneth Worthington III has no sense of
1: smell. I'd like to think that if someone throws a towel over his head, he thinks it's night and goes to sleep.
0: Sometimes he gets his ass kicked by a bunch of crows,
1: which... Oh, right, remember the Blackbird story from X-Factor? There you go. Now... This is a theory that's impossible to verify because there really is only one archangel, but there's a type of of hawk called a Harris hawk, and they do this thing called stacking where a single hawk will perch on a cactus and then one or two more will stand on its shoulders and then, you know, the next shoulders, etc., in order to get a better vantage to watch out for predators and potential prey. And presumably later on, they they pull on a trench coat over all of them and go to a job at a bank, but
0: or try to get into an R-rated movie. Um, apparently there's a kind of Australian hawk that deliberately spreads wildfires.
1: Warren, goddammit! Come on, come on. Oh, oh, also, regionally, and this, this kind of fits to me, because this is this is within his his uh, swooping grounds. This spring, there was an epidemic of hawks dive-bombing people and clawing their heads in Connecticut, which is totally something I can see Archangel doing. Warren Kenneth Worthington III, you stop dive-bombing the mailman this instant! Okay, back to confirmed behaviors of Warren Kenneth Worthington III. When he is attempting to mate, he will circle um, around his, his intended mate and scream before engaging in mock combat and then plummeting toward the ground. That sounds about right,
0: actually, yeah. Warren Kenneth Worthington III also builds a giant nest at least three to four feet across, high in a tree, and he only leaves when either he dies or the nest gets so big that it falls to the ground. Fucking rich people. Right? Man, that nest is probably full of like little bits of marble and, I don't know, it was the early 90s uh, very fancy slap bracelets? Very fancy pogs? I don't remember much about the early 90s.
1: Now, while researching hawk behaviors for this this incredibly important and deeply relevant sidebar, I also stumbled across a, a species of hawk called the, the uh, ferruginous or ferruginous hawk. And they have really goofy facial expressions. They're great. And after seeing a montage of them, I would very much like to see Warren Worthington III, the deadly archangel, um, portrayed in the manner of, of one of these silly fuckers.
0: Are you there, Marvel? It's us. Hawk Facts.
1: Anyway... Back to Apocalypse, who is is there to fix up Charles Xavier, and his way of doing that is by amping up the techno-organic virus beyond the point where it can replicate properly um, so that it will jump to him, to Apocalypse. Um, and somehow I guess Apocalypse is poisonous, but um, it works, so that's cool. Oh
0: yeah, that, that scans. I, I remember when I was taking science classes back in science school, we talked a lot about exactly this
1: scenario. And Apocalypse is, is just extra handy this episode because... He finds out what the X-Men are planning and just mentions that, oh, well, he happens to have a ship nearby that can take them to the moon.
0: It's called the Big Whale, at least in the original translation of Final Fantasy IV. That is absolutely a lie. Well, meanwhile, on the moon, Cyclops and Jean are freaking suffocating in this horrible, like, silent,
1: eerie, bleak lunar landscape. Yeah, this is, this is a bleakly, eerily wordless page, and it makes really tremendous use of both detail shots and and texture, and it's a really effective and stark shift from Peter David's dialogue-heavy standard, enough that when air comes back and with it word balloons, the relief in that moment is almost palpable. Do you ever do that thing in
0: movies where when characters have to hold your breath, like you also hold your breath?
1: I mostly do that during
0: Star Trek For The Voyage Home, Yes. I find myself doing that with this scene right here. Like, even though I'm setting the pace because it's a comic and that's how you read it. Like, I I almost don't want to go too
1: fast because I want to be there with the characters. I can't not be. You know, I talked about Lee's use of negative space. In this issue. And this page is, I think, kind of the signature example of that, the place where it just really stands out, not only negative space, but the the panel arrangement and the way they sort of collapse onto and into each other. And the way Lee uses a bunch of detailed shots laid out kind of haphazardly to be really frantic and disorienting. Um, but also kind of almost slow motion. It's a lovely sequencing. I'll stick that in the visual companion, you should take a look. It's really cool, and it's a really good study and a very specific type of storytelling that you don't see a ton in x because as we all know, they are very, very word heavy.
0: And those words do come back, as does a little bit of oxygen, when suddenly there's a bubble of air and a voice around them.
1: That's right, it's Strife, and he's brought a telekinetic bubble. And with it, a full dose of smarm. Well, well, well. Isn't this cozy? Uh, not really,
0: no. So, Strife says, hey, I got a deal for you. If you beg, as children would beg their parents who have abandoned them when those children feel
1: all alone, not that that's related to anything, then I will save you. And Scott and Jean basically say, No, you're creepy. We would rather die. Luckily, help is on the way because Wolverine, Cable, and Bishop got bored and decided to just go ahead and go to the moon after all. That's good. But we're immediately swamped by the Dark Riders. That's bad. But what is good is
0: the fact that this issue up until this point has just been cutting back to these single, almost identical panels every few pages of Cable whittling a piece of wood, Logan holding up a poker hand, and Bishop staring off into space. And it's identical every single time, except that the block of wood Cable's whittling, he slowly whittles into a figurine of Domino. Well, okay, technically the f- the suit of one of Wolverine's cards changes between one of the panels and the other, but it's just a wonderful little, like, wry Peter David passage of time humorous bit.
1: And the dial. This isn't verbatim, but the dialogue when they decide to stop. That is, pr- this is pretty close to. I'm bored. You want to go to the moon?
0: It's great. I feel like we should use that phrasing more often in our day to day lives.
1: I mean, I do. Excellent. Excellent. And because it's Peter David, we've got to slip in one final reminder that this is X-Factor, it. so Madrox realizes that something may be wrong because at the hospital, um, his duplicate who was watching the expatriates is no longer in mental contact with him because he's been knocked unconscious. But that doesn't matter. So on to part 11? 11. This is
0: X-Men number 16, conflicting cathixes. Shouldn't and- it be cathixes? It might be cathexes. I don't know how to pronounce it because it's a word that I just learned. Well, if if the singular is cathexis, it would be cathexes. I suspect you're right. According to Wikipedia, what a cathexis is is. In psychoanalysis, cathexis is defined as the process of investment of mental or emotional energy in a person, object, or idea. This is a Freudian concept. Uh, Originally, Freud used a German word for it. It was later translated into cathexis, which means what I just said. Apparently, there's some criticism from traditional Freudians that cathexis makes it sound like way more epic than it actually is, and the word Freud used translates more directly to just interest. But anyway, it's also important to disambiguate, which Wikipedia does for us. Cathexis is a genus of longhorn beetles, Cathexis is an episode of Star Trek Voyager, and Cathexis is a race of sixth-dimensional beings from the DC Universe. Here, it's just a cool title.
1: Well, and also one that I think is fairly accurate to what Strife is doing.
0: Absolutely. And the person who tells us about these cathexes is Fabian Niseza, writing again. Pencils are by Andy Hubert and inks by Mark Pennington, and also Andy Hubert inking himself toward the end of the issue. And we're going to jump right back into Strife's base, and I love our opening location setting caption. We don't get a lot of those in the post claremont era, but this is a real good one.
1: Strife's moon base. From the outside, it is a miracle of elegance and grace, an architectural wonder which speaks volumes for man's capacity to learn, build, and prosper. From the inside, however, it succumbs to his basest instincts. It breathes with primitive passions, anger, hatred, and unrelenting violence.
0: Man, the Lunar Tourism Board might be taking the wrong angle here, but the narration continues as Cable, Wolverine, and Bishop face the Dark Riders and an army of generic Stryphean goons.
1: For these three hard-bitten men of war, further talk is unnecessary. They know they are outnumbered and overwhelmed, but they know, too, that they are the best at what they do
0: which is lots and lots of extreme violence. And so they fight and fight and fight against the Dark Riders and all the soldiers, and it's not going so well. They are, like, way the fuck outnumbered, and Wolverine goes down.
1: His ribs are shattered, which, adamantium, whatever, let's not think too hard about it. Well, maybe they're shattered around the adamantium or contiguous to the adamantium. How much the adamantium is parallel to or inside them versus infused into every cell varies wildly. This might be one of those moments where there's, you know, parallel adamantium bone structure or just adamantium cores And, Wolverine reassures Cable that his healing factor is kicking in, but Cable is not super impressed. So that
0: means you'll be nice and healthy when we're overrun and killed. Damn, Cable. But that's not what happens, because it is time for a big damn hero scene, it is time for the cavalry, it is time for that strike force we mentioned before, and it is time for Storm to sound awesome.
1: Death is not an option you should be considering today, Cable. As always, the X Men fight together and they fight for life. And this is specifically a callback, I believe, to Cyclops' first line in the issue where Xavier is um, infested with a brood parasite. Ooh, nice, I totally didn't catch
0: that. And this may not be, like, the best, most memorable dialogue in the world or anything, it's fine, but I love scenes like this. We've talked about this on the show before. For me, it always takes me back to, like, Final Fantasy IX or Four or Skies of Arcadia, where, like, every NPC you've ever met, they all show up in their airships or whatever to, like, help you out when you're facing impossible odds against some giant boss, and that is this, and it is great.
1: Yeah, it's the Millennium Falcon swooping in toward the end of Star Wars. It totally is. And so, yeah, like we said, it's the strike team
0: we mentioned before. But I gotta say, like, they brought some pretty heavy hitters. But, um, Colossus? What about him? What about the rest of X-Factor who's still conscious? What about, I don't know, like, almost all of X-Force? I mean, I think the good guys know that they can trust X-Force by this point. Come on.
1: Well... They weren't certain that Scott and Jean were on the moon, and this is kind of a Hail Mary pass. And also, the moon is really dangerous. So maybe this was a calculated risk. Maybe the idea was to take a selected strike team that could probably take down whatever was thrown at it, but which would still leave a fairly large bulk of competent X-Men back at home if it came down to that. Well,
0: I mean, I don't know if competence is exactly the right word. We're talking about characters like Guido and Shatterstar.
1: Yeah, but, you know, we've got Beast, who at least has a working knowledge of the technology in the mansion. Presumably Professor Xavier will wake up someday. Um, and Strife is likewise somewhat bemused at the way events are unfolding. Such a complicated
0: tapestry we have woven. Time is but a puzzle, and we place the pieces where we see fit. As awkwardly, I imagine, as the analogies I spout.
1: No, 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 Strife. Uh, Time is like a roiling ocean. Or wait, maybe it's, no, this is the early 90s. Uh, time is like a river and history repeats itself. We'll go with Secret of Mana. Prince of is not going to come out for a while.
0: There we go. So Strife grabs up his captives, who he refers to as Mistress of the Future Storm and Father Misery. I love his epithets. I love that they're different every time.
1: I love that he just makes up these ridiculous goddamn heroic epithets for everyone he meets. Like, I am, I am really here for that.
0: Oh man, he's like Varric in Dragon Age, but like uh, way more fucked up.
1: Well, he's he's, you know, it's, it's he fancies himself the hero of his own epic, of his own poetic journey. Like, he's he's the guy who's like, well, I'm basically Odysseus doing all of my heroic stuff and fucking and murdering my way through the ancient world so I can get home to my wife.
0: The heroes split up, some to find Scott and Jean, some to go after Strife and the Dark Riders. Apocalypse goes alone to Hunt. This turns out to be a bad idea because he finds the Dark Riders and it goes
1: poorly. But as for the heroes... As for the heroes, Psylocke senses Cyclops on the surface, and they decide they're going to steal a ship as fast as they can, which Cable can fly because he's familiar with, you know, fancy future tech, although he still won't explain any of this to Sam, um, and head off to, to go for the other heroes. And... They're, they're going in to try to save Scott and Jean, but most of them get zapped by a force field on the way in. Two of them are able to get through. Cable crosses over with no problem, and Havok manages to, although it takes a lot out of him.
0: Strife is waiting with his cape billowing So hard, you guys. So hard. And Scott and Gene below him. There are various X-related montages surrounding him in the sky, and I'm not sure if that's just supposed to be symbolism
1: comics-wise or actual telepathic projections or technology. And Strife, who has taken his supervillainous elocution lessons and internalized them, has prepared a line for this very moment.
0: Let us talk of time lost and time gained. Of twisted futures and lost
1: pasts. Let us talk, Nathan. Of life. And death! Which brings us to the final chapter of Executioner's Song. It's X-Force number 18, Ghosts in the Machine, written by Fabian Niseza, with pencils by Greg Capullo, and inks by Harry Candelario. Um, So I guess it's time for a twin fight on the fucking moon. So Cable and Strife start by yelling at each other real hard, which we know that they're both very, very good at. And at this point, it's heavily implied that at least Strife is dead sure that Cable is the clone. As Strife says,
0: You are nothing more than a scientific abomination. A failed attempt to preserve a
1: life which did not even need preserving. And Cable, who has presumably seen the prisoner, responds with,
0: stab your eyes i'm a man i'm my own
1: man so miles i have a question for you now that you've finally actually watched the prisoner do you find yourself just sort of catching bits of it everywhere fucking seriously it is so continually referenced and even when it's not being referenced
0: like it's got this sort of i don't know like it's got this wonderful non-specific setup
1: that you can just apply to almost anything it's weird in ways that lend themselves to pareidolia. Like, you'll start seeing it even where it's not.
0: Which really just sounds like the plot of a prisoner episode to make number six see a bunch of pareidolia and lose his mind and then tell everyone why he resigned. Exactly.
1: Now, speaking of plots, uh, sorry, that was, God, I I think I stole one of your awkward segues there, but speaking of plots... uh, My segues are great. Okay, buddy. Uh, Storm, Logan, and Psylocke have lost the Dark Riders, and Psylocke realizes that Apocalypse elsewhere is dying, having been set upon by the Dark Riders.
0: And Archangel, who's supposed to be going with Iceman and Bishop to go cut off the Dark Riders, comes to a similar conclusion and says, I can
1: smell Apocalypse's blood. I have to find him and make his dying moments as miserable as I possibly can. Just like a hawk. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so, apparently what a hawk would do in these circumstances is track Apocalypse down to just briefly gloat and then walk away and refuse to kill him cleanly. I was really kind of expecting him to just, like, follow Apocalypse around and mock him the entire time, but it was, it was pretty low-key gloating.
0: It's actually quite mature on Warren's part. Now... Back on Earth, Xavier has been getting better, and he regained consciousness and yells a whole bunch of impressive-sounding telepathic stuff.
1: Inside the machine, the virus did it. Inside the machine is a man. Cable and strife, apocalypse and sinister, Scott and Jean, I saw them inside and out. The dreams, the plans, they're all designs, grand designs, machinations of a sort. And all of us were all ghosts in that machine. Scott and Gene and Cable and Strife, all of them linked to us in love and hate, but most of all linked to each other in blood.
0: I fucking love that. I also have to wonder if the mention of this grand design might have been the bit of X-Men that Ed Piskor got the subtitle for his comic from.
1: That seems extremely likely. We know that this is an era that he really loves, and yeah, that that makes a lot of sense to me. And Xavier is going to refer back to this... One more time when he's a little more elusive, um, basically that, that he briefly connected to everyone's mind in his fevered state and suddenly realized all the mistakes that they've all made and that they are building up to form a big tragic destiny, which takes us to Cable and Strife. And Cable very obviously does not stand a chance in this fight. And Strife, knowing that he has his opponent completely outmatched, takes the opportunity to gloat like the fancy villain he is. I have watched you throughout our lives with an almost fraternal
0: amusement, Nathan. As you went to and fro, as you played the part of rebel savior in our time and mysterious renegade mutant benefactor in this one, I always wondered what fires fueled you, what passions drove you to act as you did in ways so different than I. And now, after all this time, through time, I finally have my answer. You have been stoked by desolation, by isolation, by
1: failure! Um, actually, Strife, it's because Slim and Red raised him upright. But that's going to be irrelevant for a while yet. Now, a wild card has entered the fight someone whom Strife didn't account for, and that is Havoc, who was able to get in along with Cable because the force field which filters Summers's was permeable for him because Strife basically forgot that there were Summerses outside of his own immediate family.
0: I do like Havoc's commentary on this.
1: Kicked me pretty hard for not being Scott, but I've always
0: done a good job of that myself. Havoc also does a good job of distracting Strife with his own arrival, enough for Scott and Jean to break free of Strife's telekinetic control
1: and they try to talk Strife down. It's over, Strife. Whoever, whatever you are, it's over. It's time to stop this cycle of pain. We can work to heal your wounds, whatever they are. Let's work them out together. Strife is briefly tempted, um, but he decides that they just betray him again and that he's going to go out just as he lived, super passive aggressively. I'm not the guilty one. You are.
0: All of you are. I leave you what you left me. A legacy of hatred, a legacy of decay, a loss of hope, a loss of life, a pox, on all mutant kind!
1: Strife starts to telekinetically pull down the tower, and Cable decides it's time to end the whole vicious cycle once and for all, Terminator 2 style. And man, talking about Terminator,
0: Cable has just been getting more and more shredded in this fight. Greg Capullo does an amazing job of drawing that, of just making you feel Cable's agony... As you watch, his skin, which clearly is just a layer pasted onto his robot body, he looks very much like the T-800 here, just get ripped off. It's just hanging from his, his robotics loosely, and you start to realize this dude is way more machine than man. The thing that made him look like a human being was just a costume, just a disguise, and that's so sad and also so moving to see him nonetheless just soldiering on, fighting
1: forward because of what he cares about, even though his humanity has just been pulled away. Well, or rather, see him even in this state, clinging to his humanity in ways that Strife, who is much more intact, has long since lost. And Cable hands off a mysterious button to Cyclops, who pushes it just as Strife is apparently about to kill Cable, and it activates a self-destruct sequence. And at first, Cyclops agonizes over whether to finalize it, whether to push the button again, in what is a terrific callback to the decision to send Nathan Christopher to the future in the first place, but finally Gene, Havoc, and Cable collectively talk him into going ahead and doing it.
0: And Cyclops says, sadly, as the explosion rips through the entire area, taking out Cable and Strife both.
1: So I let him go.
0: Again. And the narration here is fucking powerful. It's not Claremont, it's not Simonson, It's Nisieza, and it works. It fits this scene and this era so well.
1: The tremendous energies ripping into the time vortex are perhaps all the more impressive by the overwhelming silence. In the vacuum of space, locked in a death grip whose bonds go far beyond the physical, cable and strife disappear without a sound. But Scott Summers and Jean Grey can hear their dying screams. They hear the haunted death knell as it rips through their very souls. And when the singing of the electromagnetic storm is done, nothing is left but deafening silence and the desolate beating of two young people's hearts. drumbeats of despair, which slowly bring to a close the executioner's song. Man, so, look, Executioner's Song is no Dark Phoenix Saga. It doesn't have that just amazing, intense punch. But it does have that, that just sort of lingering closing and sort of moments of almost almost static intensity toward the end. And I, f- I feel like we should maybe just t- take it out with the closing dialogue, uh, which goes to Scott and Jean. And as they watch Cable and Strife fade, Scott says... In order to save us all, we had to sacrifice him a second time. Scott, no. You you don't think. I don't know, Gene. I don't know if we'll ever be sure. But I do know this. I'm going to spend the rest of my life thinking about today. Thinking about him and wondering. God help me, I'll never stop wondering. Thankfully, Cable's gonna be totally
0: okay. But Scott doesn't know that now, and I really buy his reaction, having just gained his son again, having just realized it at the end, and then losing him. We do have one final scene, back on Earth, as Mr. Sinister's scientist pal, Gordon, psionically opens the canister that Strife traded to Mr. Sinister in exchange for Scott and Jean, and finds the canister initially maybe empty, or maybe just dusty because Gordon just starts coughing and coughing once the canister opens, prompting Sinister as Sinister walks away to say
1: Oh, and Gordon, please do look after that cough. Ooh, Sinister got the Maria ending.
0: You'd better do something about that cough. The Maria ending is my favorite Silent Hill 2 ending, and I really love that as we were writing our independent notes, we both made reference to that in this exact spot.
1: I mean, how many times have we played through that game together? Like, it's it's gotta be in, in the in the double digits at this point.
0: Oh, no question. But this right here... This is going to be the bit of story that leads into something that's going to, in some ways, define
1: the 1990s plot-wise. Well, except for Age of Apocalypse. That sort of skips it. Right, because what is in that canister is the legacy virus, which we're going to be looking at in a lot more depth very soon. And in general, we're going to look back over the Executioner song one more time before we move on. But for now, you've got questions. The Jack of Spades asks on Tumblr, Marvel's producing a promotional
0: comic for visitors of the 2026 Indiana State Fair held in Pawnee, Indiana. The comic will include a main story with a few backups. Marvel has decided to take pitches from prominent Pawnee locals for the backup stories. These locals include Indiana Governor Leslie Nope, Indiana Representative Ben Wyatt, Superintendent of Pawnee National Park, Parks' Ron Swanson, Mayor Gary Gergich, and former children's entertainers Andy Dwyer and April Ludgate Dwyer. What are their pitches?
1: Oh, the jack of spades. It is, I I just want to say that it is really adorable that you seem to think that anyone but Ben Wyatt would get to weigh in. Because what absolutely and unquestionably happens is that Ben Wyatt monopolizes the entire pitching process, just obsessing over obscure X-Men minutiae and wasting time to the point that the comic just ends up having to be a reprint of the Texas State Fair one with the dialogue rewritten at the last minute. Because you know he would. God damn it, Ben, I wanted to see what Gary would do. Well, Gary would have done it beautifully, but no one would ever give him a chance anyway, so... Secretly a Summers asks on Tumblr, When the witness first appears in X-Men, sitting in his prison, his throne is surrounded by several women who are just sitting there. What is the point of the witness's prison wenches? Okay, so these two women who look kind of like twins
0: or something and don't really look up, well, they must also be high-security, superpowered prisoners since they're in this place. In fact, they are far more ruthless and far more powerful than the witness himself. But the thing is, he just kept freaking going on with these, like, Cajun-accented sentence fragments about how tired he was and how he needed lumbar support. So they decided it was easiest to just let him have the big chair just so he'd shut up and to themselves then sit on the floor of the cell, which actually is made of a surprisingly comfortable future
1: alloy. So there you go. Alternate possibility. In Bishop's timeline, they've had to rebuild a lot from the past, and they mistook a set of Frazetta illustrations for actual pictures of the penal system and rebuilt based on that, and those are the prison guards.
0: And there you have it. Now, we are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters
1: and concepts.
0: What's up, Angry Claremontian
1: Narrator? You have gambled with the future, Karen Peck. You have weighed your options, then allied with your worst enemies and mortgaged your very soul. And for what? A brief admonishment from an abstract concept embodied briefly in a cracking adolescent voice. A fleeting moment of contact with Kenneth Glenn, who made the same terrible bargains from his own bleak and distant timeline. I hope it was worth it, Karen and Kenneth. But deep in your hearts, I suspect you both know the truth. The supervillain voice would probably have been funnier. Speaking of which, the mic here goes to Strife. Hello, Mother. Hello,
0: Father. Here I am on Earth-4935 without a baby swather. This dark future is very entertaining and Apocalypse tells me we'll have fun when it stops raining Flaskan blood. Now I don't want this should scare you, but my bunkmate Bradgie has contracted techno-organic malaria. You remember Frederick, Hale and Hardy? The horsemen are about to organize a hunting party. Take me home, home mother. Father, take me home. I hate Earth-4935 and its lack of baby swathers. Don't leave me out in this dark future where I might go so mad I need
1: metallic sutures. And with that... Jay and Miles, Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. Special thanks to another Matt this week as well. Um, That Matt tipped us off to the time travel tomfoolery that ended up becoming this episode's cold open. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions for every episode, and news on the now up and running Explain the X-Men transcripts.
0: Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay in the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com and tell your friends, give us reviews, spread the word. Next week, we're
1: putting The Executioner's song on pause pre-denouement to bring you the panel we recorded live at FlameCon featuring Leah Williams, Magdalene Visaggio, and Sina Grace. Once upon a time, there was light in my life Now there's only love in the dark Nothing I can say—the total class of the heart.